You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy hump day, everybody, and welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Hopefully, everybody is having a great week, and if you're a shed hunting nut whether you're out west or here in the midwest or east coast south north wherever uh, you have found success this year i've been out twice for a total of maybe four hours and uh, i've gotten skunk so far but from what everybody is telling me in the trail camera pictures that uh, everybody's getting it sounds like my area in particular the bucks are still holding so uh Next three weeks should be pretty pretty interesting. I have some all-day hunts, uh, shed hunts planned, and uh, I really need to get out and start pounding the ground, so I'm looking forward to that. Now, this intro is going to be short and sweet because this podcast is pretty long today. Um, I'm pretty excited for it, too, and uh, I am talking with Zach and Travis for this BS session and they are the brothers who started Montana wild. And that is a company that does photography and, uh, video. Um, they do films like short films of hunting and fishing. And I'm, I must say that I'm a huge fan of these guys. They put some kick ass content together and I love watching it. Um, I mention it in the podcast itself, but you guys need to go check out, um, Montana wilds Facebook page and watch some of their videos, especially the one that one of my favorites is called ambush. It's about an elk hunt and it, they connect with a giant bodied bull. That is an old, old, old bull. And it just, for, for some reason that, that, uh, that film right there just struck a chord with me. I absolutely love it and think you guys should check it out too. But as always, before we get into today's BS session podcast with Montana wild, let's hear what Keith Dvorsnak from ripcord arrests has to say about why their products are made in the United States. Well, we like to build our product right here in the United States. Um, simply for the fact of having everything on hand, we know if uh, something's wrong right off the get-go, we can fix our machines. Um, when you do stuff overseas, you wait two, three months for your product to come in, and then you find out there's a problem, and it's hard to get that back. So 
being built here in the United States is is very important to us. Being a former Marine and serving my country, you know, we have pride in the red, white, and blue. If you guys want to find out more information about Ripcord, then you need to go to ripcordarrowrest.com and check out their product line of kick-ass, badass arrow rests. So check it out today. Now, let's get into today's BS Session podcast with the guys from Montana Wild. All right, on the phone with me all the way from Montana is brothers Zach and Travis from Montana Wild. How are you guys doing today? Good. Doing well, Dan. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I uh, I cruise the internet quite a bit. I come across your guys's, uh, your videos that you make, and I must say uh, they are kick-ass, and I do like them. So, um, how did, how did your guys's, and that's, that's why I wanted you guys on the podcast, but, uh, before we get into all that kind of stuff, what, uh, how was your 2016 hunting seasons? Uh, I mean, for a a season, it was awesome. As far as experiences went, uh, as far as putting animals on the ground, it was not quite as productive as we've had in the past, but overall it was a, it was an awesome year. Yeah. I, uh. I drew a mountain goat tag this year. All right. So that was pretty awesome and unexpected. I didn't have a ton of points. I think I had like maybe six points, five or six, I think. And uh, so, yeah, I had this mountain goat tag in the Beartooth, which is one of the most rugged mountain ranges we have in Montana. And that that ate up most of my summer scouting. Okay. Um, I ended up shooting that goat the very first part of September. So it didn't really cut into my elk or deer hunting at all. But, um, other than a spring bear, which was a super fun, cool hunt I did with my buddy, Brandon and my mountain goat, I didn't shoot anything else, um, last year. So not an epic year for punching tags, but we had a lot of really cool experiences and being in the mountains is that's what we get out. That's really why we hunt. So yeah, it was a great year, but yeah, as, as far as far as killing stuff or filling tags, we didn't crush it this year, which was okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and then once you can get past the, you know, you don't have to kill to have a successful hunting season, I think then a, a guy can really become a good hunter, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. And we had some awesome uh, encounters with elk. We passed smaller bulls um had some pretty big bulls really close but just never got ethical shots you know either they hang up you know at just the right spots like a christmas tree blocking their vitals or they come in head on and uh so we had plenty of of fun out there (laughs) right right so Real quick, and and as the listeners of this podcast go, um, on one of these BS sessions, there's no l- line as far as what I'm going to ask for questions. And you mentioned you had uh, you had a mountain goat. Uh, you went, Zach, right? You went on a mountain goat hunt this year. Yep. And you drew with, you said, five points? Yeah, I think I had five or six. It wasn't very many. Gotcha. It's now, one of the easier units to draw just because it is – super rugged and you either have to have horses or be willing to hunt really hard on foot you know with camp on your back for the most part but yeah i didn't have a ton of points when i drew gotcha now a lot of the listeners here 
that listen to this podcast are, are on the East Coast and Midwest, and we don't have mountain goats. But when you draw a tag like that, and you said a lot of your summer scouting went into, you know, trying to locate these these goats in this, you know, this rugged mountain range. How much time did you? I guess how much time did you put into it? And then because of that specific tag being drawn, did you not hunt other animals this year because you were so focused on this goat? Um, so I only did two scouting trips, which I could have done more, but I feel like once you've located where the goats like to live, um, you've kind of done the homework that you need to do before you go actually hunt. Cause they move around a whole bunch. It's not, it's not like you can find one goat and he's just living in one little basin. You know, they move a yeah. pretty fair amount. Um, and the road into my unit, it took an hour and a, or it was like probably two hours on a dirt road and an hour. The last hour of it is just a crawl boulder hop in little single track um and then you hike in anywhere from three to eight or ten miles depending on what part of the unit you want to kind of get to but i took two trips in there and saw goats and billies each time and i was able to talk to a couple guys that have spent a fair amount of time in that unit um, because there's an unlimited sheep hunt in that same area. So guys can go buy an over the counter bighorn sheep tag here in Montana and hunt some of that same country. Gotcha. So I had other guys that, you know, had spent a lot of time in there that if you don't have a mountain goat tag, it's not like you're giving up any information that's hindering your season. So I was able to get quite a bit of good information on where to find billies. And so, you know, come hunting season, it was just a matter of being in there, spending the time behind the glass, you know, finding a billy that I was willing to put my tag on and, and making a stock. So. Gotcha. Now, now Travis, did you join Zach on that hunt at all? Yeah. So I went on one of the scouting trips, which I think we scouted for like three days, but yeah, I was on the whole hunt with them the whole time. Okay. I was, uh, I was there just basically as hunting partner, this blasting buddy. Gotcha. I gotcha. So why don't I've been on an elk hunt. I've been on one elk hunt, right? And I'm from Iowa. I think our highest elevation is 500 feet, maybe 1200, I think somewhere in between there. Then I get to, uh, you know, the mountains and I want to die, but <laughs> what, what's the difference between quote unquote elk country and goat country? Oh man. Well, they can be the same country. I mean, the elk are pretty gnarly. Um, we saw a few elk. That's not not an exceptional area for elk where I was hunting goats. But um, where we were in the Beartooths, um, it's really steep, rocky country. I think the biggest difference for us was actually hiking through terrain where if you there's a lot of spots where if you fall, you're just you're going to be in really rough shape or dead where hunting elk, you might be in really steep country. It might be a lot of elevation, but for the most part, if you fall, you're just going to like trip and like roll over and then like keep going. Whereas 
you know, coming across some of these big scree fields or hiking some of these ridge lines, if you fall and you have, you know, this 40 to 50 pound, pound pack on your back and you start rolling, you can't stop yourself. You're going to go for a long ways. <laughs> so, right. um, it was a little bit of a hurdle to say, Hey, I can actually hike through and navigate this country to get to this spot. Um, and once you kind of develop that confidence of being able to navigate the country, it becomes a lot easier. Um, but I think just being an exposed, rocky, steep country was the biggest difference. Um, obviously, those mountains are really tall and steep, but we've hunted elk and deer in, in other spots. I don't know. I mean, the, the state of Montana is extremely diverse. So we've been on elk hunts that are super easy. We've been on elk hunts that are as hard as my goat hunt. You know, like I said, the actual terrain that we had to hike through is probably the biggest difference, though. Gotcha. And what was the, on this goat hunt, what was the elevation you guys were at? Uh, I, I think it was, what, 8,000? It was like mid eights up to like 10,000. Yeah. Got you. I'm trying to actually look because I don't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> but So when you went in there for the actual hunt, did you were you able to locate those goats from the previous scouting trips? Yeah, so on my second scouting trip, I found a billy that I would would be happy to put my tag on. And so I I had a feeling I knew where he was living. I hadn't went in there and scouted it. But um, I kind of had an idea of where he was living. And so Travis and I went in, I think, three days before season into an area that we hadn't scouted and started looking for for goats and actually saw a handful of billies and some other, you know, nannies and kids there for those first two days. And then the day before season opened, I think we saw like two goats all day or something crazy. Like they, they all (laughs) had disappeared and moved deeper into the unit. Um, I did at the, at the end, I think it was a day before season. I spotted that Billy though, um, where I thought he was living and he was rounding this corner right to where like the easiest pass, like the most well-used trail is. And I was like, there's no way he's going to go over there and just get shot on opening day. And like the easiest spot, like it's just like, it's not going to happen. And we ended up hunting there that first day, never saw, um, really any goats hunted the second morning, hadn't seen them. And then, we decided to move camp deeper into the unit. And I ended up learning that that goat got shot on that pass opening day. (laughs) (laughs) So he was as stupid as I hoped he wouldn't be. Right. Right. (laughs) But it made it for a much cooler adventure. Cause when we moved camp, we ended up shooting a goat that night and it was, we put on some serious miles that day, a lot of elevation. And it was, it made it that much cooler just to shoot a goat. So, right now I've never had to do a pack out yet of, you know, mammoth proportions, like what you're talking about. But is there a, after you guys kill an animal up in the mountains and you know, you're, you're so happy. Is there like a feeling of, Oh shit, 
now I have to pack out, you know, 1200 pounds elk, or I have to go up 2000 feet, then down 2000 feet, then up 2000 feet just to get back to my truck with this goat is, is, is that still fun at that point? Or is, does it turn into something else? Is there another word to describe it? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a point where you're like, you've killed the animal and you're, you're going to process it and you think through your mind, Hey, like what's the process going to be to get this thing out of here? And how bad is it going to be? How much am I going to, you know, (laughs) how much am I going to suffer over the next day or two trying to get this thing out? Um, but I don't think it's something you like dread at all. I think it's just like, it's a new challenge that started for you. And you know, that, uh, getting the meat out and having it cool is completely dependent on, you know, how quickly you can get it out and right. efficiently. So it's definitely like motivation for yourself to just push through it and, and overcome that challenge. Gotcha. So you were successful. Uh, and that was a right, was that a rifle hunt? Yeah, I packed my bow around. Uh, it wasn't either, either weapon gotcha. season. I had to wear orange, which was stupid, but um, I packed my bow on my back and Travis actually carried the rifle. Um, and I, I had, I would have had a bunch of time to, to go in there and hunt, but once it snows and it, it actually snowed just a couple days after we got out of there with my goat, um, you just can't navigate a lot of the country. Like it's sketchy enough when it's dry, but when it's, when there's snow on it, like you just literally can't access some of the country that those goats live in. Right. And for me, I wanted to fill my tag and like have the full experience. Right. Um, and that day that I killed my goat, you know, we had picked up camp, dropped probably at least 1500 feet, hiked back up over this pass, dropped down another 15 to 1800 feet, climbed back up into a new basin like spotted that goat, you know, dropped down into this next basin and, and shot him. And like, we put so much effort in, in like this crazy country that I just felt like I had to shoot him with the, like, it just felt right to shoot him with the rifle. And I didn't have an opportunity to get close with the bow. And I, I just didn't, I didn't want to be picky. I just wanted to have a really cool moment in the mountains with my brother. And that's exactly what we did. Now that I've shot my goat, I like want another goat hunt so that I can be a little more selective and spend a little more time in there. Um, I don't know. I don't think most people appreciate and get to like understand mountain goats and how awesome they are until you actually go hunt them. Right. Um, (laughs) so I've developed a, a much greater appreciation for the species through, through hunting them. That's for sure. And so, Hopefully I get to go on another hunt, whether it's myself or someone else, but, um, there's definitely some big goats in that unit, but it's some rugged country. I mean, I think I shot my goat at like 10,000 feet and it was starting to snow and we packed it out on, it's like September 2nd or 3rd or somewhere in the very beginning of September. So, well, I you guys just make me seem like I'm the biggest pussy in the world. Because, 
the way you explained that, well, we had to drop down 1500 feet and then we, we just kind of, we walked over to this next base and, you know, we just, basically we just climbed another 2000 feet. I got out of my truck. I walked 200 yards to my tree stand and that's where I sat for four hours. And then I walked back to my truck. Like, (laughs) I love it when you guys non, like the Western hunters nonchalantly tell your stories because I'm sitting here in, you know, in Iowa, just like, Oh my God, I, it's almost like I feel less of a man when I'm around a guy who hunts in the mountains because just, just from, just from what you have to do. So kudos to you guys. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's not always fun. I feel like once you have the physical conditioning, it's more of a mental struggle than it is physical. Right. Yeah. Like we definitely like suffered through, there's definitely a lot of suffering that went on, but it's just being mentally tough to just keep going. Right. And so. I, I wrote something down the other day that I thought was funny, and it it's kind of applies to our hunting, which I don't know. But I, I wrote down, if it doesn't suck, it's not worth it. That makes sense. <laughs> and makes sense. to an extent, it's true because, I mean, the hunts that suck, the hunts that you push yourself and challenge yourself, you remember those way more than the hunts where like I was driving down the County road, spotted a big buck, hiked out there a hundred yards, laid down, shot him. And not to say that I don't enjoy it when that happens, but the hunts that suck, the hunts that you have to push yourself. Those are the ones that you remember. And I think (laughs) we don't necessarily go out like looking for it, but there is some enjoyment in the pain of hunting mountains. So, Travis, how'd your season turn out this year? Uh, my season was is a little more productive than Zach's, but still not great. Um, neither of us killed an elk, but I did. I, sh- I arrowed a black bear during archery elk season here in Montana. Um, Montana kind of has a little bit different as far as if you have a bear tag, you can hunt in the spring. If you don't fill your bear tag in the spring, you can use your tag in the fall. Oh, nice. So I didn't have, I didn't fill my tag this past spring. So I had a, a black bear tag going into the fall and, uh, I ended up arrowing a bear. Um, I drew a rifle antelope tag, shot a pretty nice antelope. I think on like the second day of my hunt. And then, uh, I shot, a my biggest mule deer, um, on a hunt that we did in Western Montana, you know, there, gotcha. Gotcha. so, yeah. So it sounds like you guys have, I mean, Montana is the hunter's state basically. I mean, you guys have antelope, you have mule deer, you got goats, you got bighorns, you got elk, you got just about anything. Is there a, is there a way that you guys could hunt all of those animals in one year if you wanted to, or are there restrictions as far as how many animals you can harvest in a year? Uh, I I think there is a restriction on how many big game animals you can take in a year. Cause I mean, if you look at like B tags and all the opportunities, you could do some, (laughs) some damage. I don't know what it is, but I mean, you can hunt every species, I think. Well, yeah, uh, so outside of the big three, which are tough to draw, which is, you know, um, bighorn, sheep, mountain goat, and moose, you know, okay. deer, elk, antelope, bear, 
What else? Turkey. Turkey. You can hunt those every year. I mean, antelope, you have to draw a tag, but if you want to draw the 900 archery tag, it's almost guaranteed. So it's, if, if you, you really want to hunt it, you can. If you're a bow hunter, you can hunt all. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So now, as far as turning hunting, you know, what you love, the outdoors hunting into video, when did that start? How did that start? Uh, I mean, the, the foundation for it probably started when we were skiing a bunch when we were younger and kind of looking at, well, I mean, our inspiration when we skied were ski films. And so, I mean, that was just something that we kind of got into in high school was taking our dad's camera and just filming ourselves up on the mountain. Um, and so we had kind of a rough understanding of film and editing, like very basic. And then when we started hunting and fishing, I don't know, like I was just so blown away at how awesome it was and all the cool places you could go. We just decided to start a blog really just to share that those moments with our friends and family. And so once we kind of immersed ourselves into those industries, you know, we started looking for content because from a skiing and snowboarding background, like you would consume so much content online. And so when we jumped into hunting and fishing, we're like looking for content to learn and to be like, get inspired to go out. And like, we weren't finding a whole lot. (laughs) So we were like, well, maybe there's, a niche here for us to keep doing what we're doing and potentially turn it into a business. And so, you know, at that point we kind of started to invest in a little bit better camera gear, started to put a little more time into it. And our goal from day one though, has always been the same just to inspire people to get outside. You know, we want our content just to inspire people to go have an adventure and it doesn't have to be hunting or fishing. It can be anything outdoors, but you know, and to clarify, like, we didn't grow up hunting and fishing. Like, our parents didn't hunt at all. Um, and it wasn't until, I don't know, was it 2008, 2009, uh, that we actually started hunting and fishing. Um, so, it's not like we've been doing this our whole life. And when we did finally, like, discover hunting and fishing, it just became, like, an instant passion to where we were just like, wow, like, this is awesome. Like, I've been missing out. And, uh, we just felt like after we started to make films, that it was kind of like our own duty to share these experiences with people that maybe have never hunted or like fly fished in their whole life. And maybe that'll motivate them to go find these experiences for themselves. Cause for us, we were just like, this is so awesome. Everyone should at some point in their life experience hunting or fishing. So that's been a big motivation for us. And not being selfish and being like, no, I want to be the only hunter out there and I don't want more hunters out in the field. It's just, right. you know, I think everyone, if they want to put in the effort, has the right to go uh, enjoy it. Right. So what was your first, what was your first film that you made? Do you For guys remember that? Hunting or? Whatever. Well, I mean, because you, you had to start somewhere, right? Yeah, I don't even remember. <laughs> I, I, think, like, I think it was probably like a stupid fishing film on like Rock Creek. 
not even I wouldn't even call it a film. It was just like a video of us out there being Jerry's or you know, <laughs> totally sucking but just loving it. Yeah. Yeah. Just like packing a GoPro and like a camcorder and just filming whatever, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I'd have to look. I don't know what our like first like, I think it was video would be. But so as you I did a lot I did a lot of filming back in the day and uh, to, to be honest with you, the reason I I don't film my hunts now is because it is a bastard sometimes to haul all that hunting or all that video gear around with you. Um, I've I've missed an opportunity at a Boone and Crockett buck because of it. I'm trying to you know film my hunts and um, and I've kind of laid it down. I, I miss it a little bit, but I've I've laid it laid it down. Was it hard for you guys to? pick up the camera and start recording um, your hunts and, and kind of, I don't know, either having to miss opportunities because it wasn't on film or did you guys always have kind of a second person being the camera man with you? How, how did, how did that, uh, I guess, learning curve work? Um, I mean, fortunately we're like, we're brothers and I feel like we kind of have, the same skill set as far as when it came to filming. So it'd be like, Hey, it's your turn to hunt. I'm going to be the camera dude and just follow you around with the camera. Um, you're still kind of getting that same experience except you're not the one pulling the trigger. So it, in the beginning, it definitely wasn't ever like an issue where it's like, ah, I don't want to bring all the camera stuff. It was like, you know, we were stoked to go out there and see what we could capture. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I you're just as motivated to like actually get something on film as we were to actually go out and shoot something. Gotcha. Like we yeah, had the passion. We had the passion to actually want to film it. It wasn't like that was a burden, you know. Right. For sure. For sure. Now, when did you guys realize that? Okay, uh, we can put stories together. We can. Uh, we can put out some really good footage because some of the footage that I've watched over the last, you know, month, once I, you know, once we figured out that you guys were going to come on the podcast, you guys make some kick-ass stuff. And, um, and when did you guys realize, okay, we make good, you know, films. Now let's, let's try to see if we can't uh, do this as a full-time gig. Mm. I mean, we did it for two years, just, entirely self-funded just because we you know a love doing it b thought there might be potential for something more and i graduated college and in 2013 we decided to make it a business and try to make an income um making films and doing photography and so I think for that first year, year and a half, we still like served, served tables there in Missoula. Um, yeah, we, we were servers just trying to, you know, make as much money as we could. And then in our free time, we was working on Montana wild. Um, yeah. but I think a big, I mean, when we started out, you know, like we had a lot of positive feedback from anyone that saw our films, which that's always motivation, you know, to keep, keep it going is, you know, positive feedback from a lot of people. Uh, we also, I entered into like a bear archery. They had a video contest and 
after the contest was over, um, the guys over there were like, dang, like you guys, like that was awesome. Like, are you guys planning on like continuing to do this or what? And we were like, I don't know. We haven't really like thought about it. You know, I, I think we'd like to keep doing this sort of thing. So just having like companies like that say positive things was definitely motivation to continue to do it. Gotcha. So have you guys ever had quote unquote real jobs or has this been, you know, you right out of college, boom, now we're, we're making hunting films. Uh, I've had a lot of jobs, uh, in my life. I wouldn't not like career jobs, but right. I've been a server a lot. I worked in a sporting goods store for three or four years selling skis and camping gear. I worked at a, a marina. I did maintenance at a marina. I was a, a golf caddy. Um, golf caddy? Yeah. So Dude, that, that was cush. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, well, well, we grew up on a golf course, so we golfed a bunch when we were younger and all through high school. Gotcha. And then in Coeur d'Alene, they have a really high-end private club called the Club Black Rock, and so um playing golf and stuff we had connections out there and and so we actually ended up doing quite a bit of caddying out there in our summers during the end of high school and like a little bit at the start of kind of our college years and you know it's not the worst gig to cruise around you know and and (laughs) help people find their balls and you know decide where to hit it and you know read some putts and you know be outside and not was, have to really answer to a boss necessarily and, and make pretty good money for doing that. And, you know, I remember, uh, I used to, well, I was a cook at a golf course for, I think two years in high school. And on the tournament days, I would have to drive a beer cart around like once every 30 minutes, drive to every hole. And then guys would buy uh, beer off me. And, I would come back with like these wads full of cash that they that they ended up tipping me. Number one, because they were drunk and making bad decisions. They were like, hey, I'll take a two dollar beer and hey, here's uh, here's twenty bucks. Go, uh, I don't know, go buy yourself something prettier, or whatever, you know. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. But the it car- helped to buy. It helped me buy uh, whatever I needed. The card girls make bank. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Okay, so now you've uh, now you guys are making films. How do you guys decide what to focus on for a film? How do the ideas come to you? You know, I'm I'm looking at your website right now, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm scrolling through the list of all the films that you've made. What's the process? How how do you guys go into the you know the conception to the completion what's that look like oh it's a pain in the butt is what it is (laughs) Um, i mean for the most part we try to pick stuff that we think is cool and i think that's been um an asset to us for our business is you know the core of montana wild is what travis and i think is cool and fortunately other people have thought that's cool um you know, if you start kind of cave into what everyone wants to see, kind of fall in with a lot of other people. And, um, 
we've tried to stay very like this is what we like to do um whether people are gonna like it or not you know like we made a tooth and fang which was like an hour-long coyote hunting film like <laughs> we work in the fly fishing industry you know like from a business perspective is that like a if someone was sat down it's like is this the best business move like heck no like that's something we wanted to do and thought was cool though and so i think yeah. that brings the brand like a little bit of credibility with our followers but you know to start like we're like well what do we think is cool you know in our time out in the field hunting and fishing what were some of the cool things that we did that we didn't film that maybe we could expand on and would make for a cool film and then you know it's a lot of brainstorming from there as like well what does the film look like like what's the storyline you know how long is it going to be trying to put a lot of thoughts down on paper and you know here in the west there's a million opportunities for hunting there's a lot of cool hunts so trying to weed those down i mean probably for the last month and a half we've been you know working on film pitches and film ideas you know pretty consistently the two of us and you know it probably got hammered down to maybe a half dozen for this next year and you know probably make three hunting films come fall but that's how i would describe it i'll let travis kind of break down how we would maybe go through the process yeah i mean the process it's it's evolved over the years um it's continually changing i mean yeah we're at the point where it's you know, we either have ideas we've written down in the past that have come to us, because um, we're definitely strong believers in, you know, having a notebook of, like, ideas of, you know, just certain things hit you at a certain time. If it if it comes off as a good idea, you write it down and maybe come back later and it, it sparks a new idea for a film. Um, so sometimes it's just totally random, like, you know, throughout the year, like, oh, that would be the coolest film if we went and did this at this location next year um, with this tag. Uh so just having a, a book with like ideas that come to you throughout the year is huge. Otherwise, you know, we do sit down and have brainstorming sessions together. Um, obviously some of the hunts we do is completely dependent upon drawing tags. So well, it's, it's sometimes very difficult to plan in advance, uh, especially if you don't even know if you're going to draw a tag, but um, yeah, we come up with an idea. We look at all the logistics of you know what's the story how long is the film gonna be um you know what's you know like what's the output gonna be is it just gonna be online or are we gonna try to do a dvd or you know whatever it may be and then we just put the pieces together from there yeah unfortunately a big part of it is what do we think we can actually sell to people to get funded because you know i wish i was a trust fund baby and could just you know self-fund all these film ideas that we have but unfortunately that's not the case so you know people are always like why don't you make more films like the cost of money so you know one of the big things is like why is this unique why are people going to want to watch it and why would someone invest into this project um so that kind of channels a little bit of your creativity i think you just have to keep it in mind when you're coming up with film ideas but it's a really complicated process that's kind of a rough yeah outline of it so all right you guys have just put down on paper this great idea for uh, a film you go out there 
and it's either raining or the animals aren't cooperating or you're not how how much difference is there from the vision in your head to the reality once you uh, you know step out onto the plains or in the mountains um i mean yeah with hunting you never know what's going to happen or what's to be expected um and sometimes you do have to have like a general storyline or something that isn't dependent upon how many animals you see, right, you know, right. it, it could just be about the location or like the experience that you're, you know, you're going to have there. You don't know exactly what's going to, everything that's going to entail in that experience. But, um, sometimes you do have to, you know, rework the idea a little bit. Okay. Yeah. I mean, occasionally stuff will just get scrapped from like weather. Like we tried to go film a high country mule deer hunt probably four years ago. And like we got up, camped a night, hiked in the next day to like our second location where we were going to like actually start hunting. And like we ended up spending the next two and a half days basically in a tent in a snowstorm at like 9,000 feet and then we went home. Like I got, I got sick. <laughs> we got, got off the mountain and we went home. Like nothing happened there. Like we went out there to, to film. We did a little filming and like it didn't work out. And you just, you know, like it wasn't a big project or anything, but it just had, you know, didn't work out. Like yeah. that's okay. And so, uh, it's tough too when you go into spots like that and you don't have cell service. You know, the only thing you can do is look at the forecast before you go in there. And so you're sitting in a tent. It's dumping snow. It's so foggy. You can only see like 30 yards and yeah, you're basically just waiting. You know, you're obviously shooting some footage in the tent, but it's not what you expected. Right. So how, how do these films get funded? Do, do you approach a company and say, Hey, I'm making a film. Here is the, the premise. Would you like to, to partner with it? Is, how, how does it work? Yeah. Um, I mean, <clears throat> we've established relationships with brands, so it's kind of a conversation that everyone expects to have every year. Yeah. So it's been, it's easier now than it was at the beginning, but I mean, probably 95% of the film work we do is us creating a film idea, you know, writing up a treatment for it, like a film pitch and trying to like convey our idea to them and kind of having it all laid out, you know, what we're going to do for deliverables, how we're going to distribute the film and then, you know, create a budget for what we think it's going to cost us. And then, you know, pitch it to these brands and say, Hey, you know, here's some ideas we have, you know, what do you think? Ideally we like to have a conversation with them ahead of time and be like, well, what's your focus this year? Like, is there something that you guys are trying to, you know, focus on, is it, is it mule deer? Is it elk? Is it antelope? Is it a pattern? Is it a product that helps us narrow some of our film ideas, you know, that might fit with that. But, um, it's, it's a long process. (laughs) It's a lot about relationships and, um, it gets to the point where they have an expectation that you'll probably end up making a film and, Either they'll want to partner with you or not on it. Right. Yeah. And but, you, you guys mentioned you, you start off with a lot of pitches and then you kind of uh, whittle them down to a handful. Yeah. How many, how many 
you mentioned you had some of these brainstorming sessions. How many ideas come from, from these brainstorming sessions and is there alcohol involved? <laughs> you know, usually not. I mean, it's, we obviously there's probably nights where we drink a couple beers and, <laughs> and uh, had some brainstorming sessions, but mostly just creativity amongst ourselves where it's like, yo, Hey, this night we're going to have a little brainstorming session, talk about films we're going to create for this year. And it just happens. I think it's just uh, like carving out repeated time to think about it. Cause it's kind of like writer's block. Like you have like, you can sit down for an hour and feel like you came up with nothing. Yeah. Like if you just do, if you do it again, like the next day and then again the next day and like watch some film and like think about your hunting season, look at some old photos or whatever, like something will emerge. (laughs) Um, Yeah. We don't, we honestly don't even hardly drink at all. So typically alcohol is not a key factor. (laughs) Well, that's good. We probably have like eight to 12 ideas every year that were like, you know, these could potentially be pretty cool. And then we try to whittle it down to, three to five for hunting and for fishing. And, you know, like last year we really only filmed for one film that we'll film again a little bit this year and then a really short little film. And then we filmed two hunts, I think last year. Yeah. So it gets cut down quite a bit. Right. So are you guys even, if there's no, if there's no accepted pitch, are you guys even filming the hunts that you don't have film ideas for? Um, you know, it hasn't happened yet. So I guess we haven't been put in that sort of position. Uh, the biggest limiting factor is film permits. Yeah. Oh yeah. Every day on forest service is 150 bucks. Okay. So you can't, you can't really just go out and start filming a hunt, you know, like it has to be planned for us now. Um, you know, any commercial filming on public lands, you're going to need a permit. So, okay. And, and they, it, I don't think I've gotten a permit in less than like three weeks. Most of them are at least a month of back and forth and an application and, a process um you know the government's just not typically super fast and responsive so that's one of the reasons we don't film more i mean it's been nice because it allows us to have some hunts where we just shoot photos and um don't have that weight on our shoulders and a, a big part of our business is photography as well so um it's kind of a balancing act but the permits is really why we don't film more than we do now. Gotcha. $150 a day can add up. I take it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when in the beginning, before we knew about film permits, we filmed all the time. And so, um, we learned about film permits the hard way, unfortunately, but we're, we're very knowledgeable now. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's see. I want to ask you guys one question, but I want to hear both of your answers from it. Do you guys have a favorite film that you've put out so far? I'll I'll let Travis start first. Favorite hunting or fishing or just both? Any, any, any film that you've guys done. Um, 
You know, I would say for sure one of my favorite films, um, it was a film called Ambush. It was uh, an archery elk film that we did, and Zach ends up shooting this super old bull after being raw for like, I don't know how, a minute something, almost, I don't know, a minute and a half. And uh, it was just a crazy like story and and day to relive and and it, I think it ended up being pretty cool for um, what we were able to capture. Definitely one of my favorite films that we've done. I tell you, I I've, I've consumed in my day a lot of hunting content, and that encounter. And I'd, I've never seen uh, a mature bull, right? I, I don't. I can tell you what a mature whitetail looks like, but yeah, when yeah. that bull stepped out, I go, "That's an old bull." Just his body was gigantic, um, and and I want to hear what you have to say, Zach, in a second. But how hard was it to hold? I want you to for the people who haven't seen the uh, film. First off, go to montanawild.com and check out the the film Ambush, but I want to I want you to relive that real quick, that that moment real quick. What was it like to have that encounter, have to hold that bow back that far, all that? Walk us through that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was one of my best elk hunting moments. Um I mean, a little of the backstory just quickly is um I kind of had found this spot that I wanted to hunt elk, you know, really, really thick timber, hard to move around. You're really never more than two miles from a road. We'd hunted there three or four days, I think, and hadn't gotten into any elk. They weren't talking. I mean, you see these massive rubs and you know, there's some huge bulls in there and we hadn't run across any water. And I was like, well, they've got to be drinking somewhere, right? And so we ended up in the middle of the day going and kind of checking out this little pond area and decided to kind of walk around it and found out that the elk, it looked like we're using it pretty pretty heavily. So um, we just decided to go in and sit it like it was our last night to hunt there and we got in and another hunter had actually kind of semi brushed in this little spot to sit. And so we went in there, um, and sat and there was a wallow at I think 25 or 30 yards. And there were some fresh bear tracks in it, which is one of the reasons I came to hunt it. I had a bear tag and I was like, well, if we're not going to see an elk, like I'll shoot a bear if he comes in and, um, got in there, sat down and, I was actually going to like lay down <laughs> and take a nap. <laughs> Travis was like filming and he was wide awake. I was like, I was asleep. Like you let me know something, you know, come in and like 15 minutes later, I was like, okay, like I've only got to sit here for like two or three hours. Like, I think I probably can just man up, sit here, be ready. And like not 10 minutes after I had gotten up and kind of got on it, Travis was like, I heard something. And Travis for whatever reason, nine times out of 10, here's stuff way before me. And I was like, yeah, I didn't hear anything, but okay. And sure enough, sure enough, like maybe a minute later, like you could just hear like a little bit of something coming our way. And I got ready and couldn't, we, I didn't really get a good look at the bowl until he stepped out just with how thick it was. Um, 
and from the camera's angle, people are like, why didn't you shoot right away when I'm at first at full draw? And his shoulder actually hadn't cleared like the trees in front of me when he stopped. And I just was like, we're just going to wait, you know, and he'll, he'll move out and I'll get a shot. And he ended up sniffing the ground there where we had walked in, which fortunately that didn't cost us the opportunity, but we probably should have been more selective about how we walked in <laughs> rather than two dudes stomping right through where a bull would come out. Um, yeah. Fortunately, he didn't spook, and um, he actually, like, he looked right at us at the camera. Fortunately, we were in the shadows, had camo on, had a face mask. Um, I think it was a little chipmunk behind us that was, like, screaming and chirping, which is what made him look. Um, But I was at full draw. He turned and headed away, and... I just felt like it was so close and so calm. If I let down, like he would, that sixth sense would just hone in on us and it would be done. And so I basically just kept holding just, you know, knowing like if I can't hold my pin on him well enough, I'm just not going to take the shot. And fortunately when he turned sideways, um, I got my pin on him and felt comfortable enough you know, to take the shot. And fortunately I made a perfect shot, double lunged him. You know, he probably ran 150 yards and, and died within, you know, a minute or so. And so that was super cool. Like we knew he was an old bull just, you know, from the mass he carried on his antlers and he, he looked like he was regressing, you know, he was a three by five biggest body to elk I've ever seen. And so I ended up pulling two teeth and sent them to a laboratory here in Belgrade. And um, they came back at 14 and a half years old. Man, that's like, crazy. You know, it's, it's crazy to think about like when that elk was born, how old you were, <laughs> you know, and like how long he's been living in the mountains and just how gnarly he is. And to like screw up, you know, in a seemingly stupid situation like that, it's just wild to think about. But I'll never forget just the noise that his hoofs made when like he came out, just like the mass he carried in his body was crazy. Like I should have probably shoulder mounted that elk, just like the nose and the face that he had on him was just so wild. Yeah. I've never seen, you know, like with deer, how they get the Roman nose. Yeah. That bull like was, is one of the only bulls where I've really seen like in his face where he looks like he has like a Roman nose for like a bull. So it was crazy. The buck I shot this year um, for archery had a huge Roman nose on him. He's actually sitting on the wall behind me, but he, uh, it is one of the, just an old looking face. There's something about a, not necessarily antler size, but just a huge mature animal that is so, so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Zach, what's your uh, favorite film? Ambush is for sure one of them. Um, there's a film that's finished that was in the hunting film tour two years ago uh, called The Crags. It's a bow hunting mule deer film that I really like. It hasn't been released yet. It'll come out sometime this year. Um, I love Buck Nasty Browns, our fly fishing film. That's one of our most popular films, and I just... The trip was super fun. The filming was great. Like 
I love how the film turned out. It just was a really cool project. And a lot of, we got a ton of great feedback on it, even though some of the, uh, the locals weren't too stoked on it, but you know, was that because you gave away their spots or something? Well, we were going to say the name of the river, <laughs> the whole, the whole concept of the film was just like a ski film. Like right. dudes get together and they travel somewhere they've never went. And they're like, yeah, we're here at so-and-so mountain. And we were like, we're just going to pick a river. Like Sam had been there once before and that was it. And so we did a little research, like no one was, you know, they tried to make it sound like it was a conservation issue, which it really wasn't. It was just a front for them, you know, basically being mad that we were there. But you know, we talked to locals there and no one was like, yeah, I don't think you should come film here. Anyways, our teaser had originally said, you know, the river and the fly fishing film tour almost decided to pull it just because, you know, they're a little bit enslaved to their sponsors and the fly shops and that side of the industry. So if they put up a stink, you know, whatever, we were like, it's not that big a deal. Like we don't have to say the name of the river. Like either you guys want the film or you don't, it's not a big deal. Like we'll make a little bit of an agreement here to try to, you know, calm the waters a little bit, but and we honestly didn't even think about it as being an issue until when it came out. And then the locals just, well, some of the people were just like up in arms about it, but it's, it doesn't, I mean, we definitely have some haters out there uh, for whatever reason, they're either <laughs> jealous or whatever it may be. Um, but, you know, there's multiple, there's multiple other films in the five Fishing film tour where they named the location and river and those films got zero flack. And it's just like, so it's okay for someone to go name a river in Alaska and Washington, but it's not okay for us to go name one down uh, near Idaho and Oregon. Yeah. It's just like, we were just like, what the heck is going on? Like, sorry, (laughs) these people are pissed. We came into their home waters and like put together this film that's going to, you know, obviously people are going to see it and be like, wow, that's really cool. I might want to go there someday, but it's no different than the other films that were in the tour that got named. So right it was yeah espn had done a spot there like the guys at gink and gasoline had done a film there and like named it and no one was upset about that and like the guy you could go i called all the fly shops like they're still guiding trips in there you know like still profiting off of it it was very i mean for whatever reason there's some people that aren't stoked on what we're doing i think part of it's that the traditional model of fly fishing we don't really care for (laughs) you know we're putting a little bit more fun youthful like get people excited about fishing as opposed to kind of fishing was this club like this rich man sport this exclusive thing and that will probably never go away but i think more people like should get into fishing i mean if you want to protect places and you don't have advocates for it then like right. who's going to do anything, you know, like people should go out and value the resource and appreciate it. And right. so, you know, that'll ruffle a few feathers, but. I mean, and, and at the end of the day, that video was about friends going fishing, right? Absolutely. Uh, right. So. True, <laughs> and you go true. to the fly fishing film tour. It's like, this is the first time, like the biggest, this, like there's no, you know, there's no like measuring stick for our films. It's just like us going out and having a good time. 
Right. You know, we're never claiming to be hunting the biggest bulls or the most extreme this or like we're not breaking world <laughs> records. We're not. You know, like, it's not an ego thing, which is how people try to spin it that don't like us or are jealous of what we're doing. But like, we're just really trying to show how fun fishing and hunting can be and how cool it is. So right. So going to the fishing thing, is that something you guys have just recently got into? Just like, just like you're hunting. Or has fly fishing been something you've got you guys have been doing for a while? No, I'm fishing and hunting kind of started essentially the same time. We went we got fishing once with our dad when we were like twelve, like ten and twelve or twelve and fourteen, pretty young. And I was like, dude, that's stupid, dude. That's for old guys. Like, I'm not gonna go fly fishing ever again. <laughs> and we did like like we spin fish when we were younger with our dad and our grandpa for like bass and pike and crappie and stuff, but never any fly fishing. So what, what is it about fly fishing that you guys like so much? Cause I, to be honest with you, I am, I'm to that point in my life where I want to go buy a fly rod and start, uh, you know, fly fishing for bluegill and farm ponds. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think all fishing is super fun. But I guess it's kind of like archery and rifle hunting, you know, like, right. Would you rather kill something with your bow or kill something with a rifle? Um, I guess fly fishing is kind of more of like an art form. Um, you know, you have to like perfect a cast to get it out there. And then, you know, I guess dry fly fishing is probably the biggest appeal to, you know, going out and fly fishing is seeing a trout come up and eat a bug off the top of the water like it's a real thing um i don't know yeah i mean fly fishing was just something that when i lived in missoula it's like the fly fishing mecca you know like people come from around the world to fish rock creek i was like well i better go out and like see what this is all about you know and we had a buddy who fished and so i went out and did it and like i actually enjoyed the places that it took me the most like you can get out in the back country and fish for cutties or you can go down, you know, like when we lived in Missoula and fish in town for like an hour, if you want, like it's really diverse and it's just another way to get out and enjoy, you know, God's creation. And, um, you can treat it, you can treat it like hunting. I mean, it's, it's very different from a mindset for me, but, um, there's a lot of parallels and I think fly fishing, you know, I wouldn't, it's easy to call it an art form. I don't know. It's just, there's maybe an extra level of depth there, uh, you know, as opposed to maybe fishing with a spin rod or something. I maybe not, I haven't done it a whole lot. Like I'm not a, I'm not a purist by any means where like, if I see someone rolling down the river, like throwing a Rapala, I'm going to be pissed. I'm like, heck yeah, like they're out here probably crushing more fish than me and having a good time. Like good for them. Like, um, yeah, it was kind. Of, it's kind of funny. It's the way the way you said that was. I remember my one of the very first times I ever went snowboarding, and there was this guy on the mountain that day who was, you know, he's like, "Go big or go home, bro." Like he was, <laughs> you know, giving me shit because I didn't know what I was doing. I just, I you know, I kind of or you know, snowboarders versus skiers. I can see some yeah. guy like, "Hey, get out of the way, fly rider," or you know, or yeah. whatever you know. So, but yeah, a, a while back, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of 
hunting rules and, and regulations that uh, hunters need to be aware of when going into certain areas, whether that's, uh, you know, you're hunting for elk or, you know, you're, you're, you're fly fishing. Um, back in 2013, you guys got into a little bit of hot water, I guess, over some, some fishing that you guys did. Can you walk us through what, what happened back in, uh, uh, 2013 that landed you guys, uh, I guess got you, got you in trouble. Yeah. Got us in the spotlight for sure. Um, that's right. Yeah. So 2013, like that was our first year as a business and, um, we wanted to make a film for the fly fishing film tour. Like that was kind of our source of inspiration when we started fishing, you know, going to the fly fishing film tour and like watching films. And so being filmmakers, we were always like, well, what could we do? Like what would be sick to watch in the fly fishing film tour? And seeing all these exotic locations <clears throat> that are kind of unattainable for the average guy, we're like, well, let's make something that's like in our backyard. And, um, like the there's a bull trout fishery it's the south fork of the flathead it's the only place you can legally fish for bull trout um and you have to either hike way in or get packed in we're like dude this would be an epic film like it's super beautiful scenery clear water um there's definitely an element of adventure you know to be packed in on horseback 20 some miles and fish for 30 or whatever it is and then come out on the other side um we were like let's make a film here and so, you know, we, we actually had pitched the film to some people and got a little bit of support for it. You know, we funded most of it ourselves. And so, um, you know, we talked to fly shop owners, guides, and, you know, kind of figuring out how are we going to structure this trip and where should we go fish? And, um, our, our third buddy, Anthony, he was actually a fishing guide. And so long story short, um, you know, we got our catch cards, we fished within the legal season, we went in and made this film and, um, you know, came back that fall after hunting season, edited it and had submitted, you know, sent out rough cuts to some of our sponsors to like the fly fishing film tour, um, and had a, a teaser go up. Um, I think it was like a minute and a half or two minute film teaser and I think it was in just before it was like a couple of weeks before the film tour is going to start like launching and promoting their films. We actually learned about film permits and how we, you know, were supposed to be doing film permits, which prior to filming, I had called the film office and talked to the film commissioner, you know, Denny about, you know, here's what we're doing. Do we need a permit? Like what's the process? And you know, and our conversation, he said, no, what you guys are doing, you're not making any money, you know, um, you don't need a film permit for this. And, you know, it, <laughs> that wasn't necessarily the truth. You know, the Montana film office and Denny will deny it, but you know, whatever, like for people that think we would go in and just blatantly disregard laws when we're planning on producing a film that's going to go into a film tour and tour across the country and be released online you know why would we be so stupid if we actually knew what we were doing so when we learned that we, were, we we called all the sponsors the film tour like we got to pull this film we're just going to scrap it like 
we were wrong. Like we needed permits. If you put this film out, like the forest service is just going to be pissed off and that's going to reflect bad on not just us, but everybody, you know, like we need to just take a stance here. Like, Hey, this is a really awesome film, but let's pull it. Like, I'm sorry. Like this is just not going to be a good situation. We didn't know. And yes, everybody, you know, wants to see this film come out, especially us. You know, we didn't just spend all this time and effort going in here and doing this and making this film to scrap it and never let it see the light of day. So we actually pulled the film and, and that was back in, I think like January of 2013. Wasn't no, it? it was 14. It was, I don't know. It was just before the film tour does 14, their stuff. Yeah. Anyways, you know, we ended up getting in trouble, um, for fishing in the tributaries at a later date with FWP. Um, the tributaries of the South Fork are closed to bull trout fishing. We didn't know. And if someone can find any shred of evidence other than FWP saying we knew, like, I would love to see it. Um, <laughs> Cause we went in there and filmed, you know, no holds barred, had it in our film was going to be out there for the world. Anthony was a fishing guide, you know, again, why would we blatantly be that stupid if we didn't know? Honest mistake. Um, you know, we've obviously <laughs> went through the ringer and paid in full for that mistake. Um, but the year after we went in there, the regulations were changed to address the exact issue we had fishing those tributaries. Um, and, you know, yes, can you say we made a mistake? Sure. Like maybe we should have known like prior to going in there. And even, you know, after sending the film out to people and, you know, pulling it from the tour, we had no knowledge that any of the fishing we done, had done there, you know, could have been seen as illegal. So, And it, it's right. pretty easy to tell whether you're in a tributary or not up there. Like, the main stem's pretty large, and the tributaries are fairly... I mean, you can, you can definitely tell if you've been up there what's a tributary <laughs> and what's not. And, like, through the whole process, like, we never had anyone once say, Hey, like, don't plan on fishing there because the tributaries are closed. Like we had people tell us spots on tributaries of where to fish for bull trout. And, um, even at, like, even in the teaser we released publicly, you can tell like there's shots like blatantly on tributaries. And if someone were to go through all the footage, like we have shots you know, of footage of, uh, Myself and Anthony were like, hey, there's a bull trout um, in this pool in a tributary. We're going to rock, paper, scissors to see who gets to fish for it. And it's like, why would we do that if we know we are legally <laughs> not yeah. supposed to be doing it? You know, right. it's not right. it's the whole time we filmed over those like seven days that any of us were like, hey, dude, don't say anything about this bull trout being in this tributary. We're going to fish for it. The whole time I was like, hey, there's a bull trout. Let's try to catch it. Like we were complete, you know, we didn't know. We had no idea that it was a law that you couldn't fish there. Um, so, yeah, it was a mistake. And then, you know, through the whole process, FWP is like, oh, yeah, like we just want to, you know, make sure this doesn't happen again. Like we're not going to make this into a big thing. And so, you know, after it was all done on our end, we were like, pretty blown away at how they wrote up their press release, you know, to the public, like had a super detrimental impact on the fishery, uh, which proved that one. Like there's not even a dead fish anywhere. So, 
you know, good luck. Like there were certain holes where we saw 30 bull trout. Like you're telling me that us catching like a dozen bull trout, whether you want to claim that they, you know, some of them didn't make it or, you know, whatever they want to say, like prove it. Like, I'm sorry, but that's an absolute lie. You guys are trying to make it sound way worse than it is to justify spending two years investigating essentially a non-issue and spending taxpayer dollars for what? Like, right. what was our real impact, you know? And and saying that we re-released a bull trout for underwater footage, another lie. Like, the recourse to actually try to take it to FWP on that is, you know... If you actually go talk to attorneys on like legal recourse for like defamation or, or that type of stuff, like there's not a whole lot you can do unless you can prove that like they had it out for you to like try to ruin your name. And so that stuff's frustrating. Like you have a 30 inch bull trout, like you've never held a fish and it like kicked out of your hand in the water. Like the streamer's still in it. What are you supposed to do? Like you got to bring it back in and net it and like pull it out. I mean, if a guy, if there's three dudes there and one guy had an underwater housing, like, why would you not film that fish coming back in? Like, there was nothing intentional about getting the footage. It's just a fact that, like, there's a dude there with a camera and we're out there to film fishing. Like, So at the end of the day, you know, after all this kind of, you know, all this went down, do you look back on that experience and say, okay, maybe I should have made an extra phone call at the beginning to, to, you know, clarify some of the rules. Should I have, I mean, is there anything you would have done differently if you could go back in time and, and change what you did? Yeah. I mean, obviously going back be like, yeah, I should have called and found out for sure what the regulations were meaning, but it's like, do you call every time you go out fishing to check on everything, you know, as far as regulations wise, like if you go and fish the local river that you fished the, the two years prior and thought you knew the regulations just from, you know, reading them and talking to other people in the area and seeing how they're fishing, like going into it, we thought we knew what the laws were. Um, if there was any like point in our mind, we we're like, Hey, I don't necessarily know. Like we would have made that phone call. And like now going into projects, yes, we take extra precaution or like, Hey, like we're checking every, you know, we're crossing every T and dotting every I on every right. single thing to make sure that doesn't happen again. Cause obviously this was a pretty big eye opener for us. Well, yeah, it's just like, I mean, everybody should, but how many people when it's like, okay, fishing season's here, I'm going to go read the regs front to back and know <laughs> it. I read the hunting regs front to back. Like you go in and you want to feel knowledgeable about it, but you're telling me that you can read that once and never have to go back and reference it. Like you just all of a sudden like know it. Right. And the big you know, thing with I mean, like, they changed the regulations the year after we went up there and did it obviously is them stating that, Hey, the regulations were pretty vague and like somewhat misleading and they had an issue with it that they had to make changes. Right. So, and, right. and I don't think we've ever been like, Oh my goodness. Like we're being taken advantage of here. Like, it's a crappy situation. Like, but we like have handled it the way that you're supposed to handle it. We're just like bummed that FWP made it sound like we're like raging criminals who are in there to like destroy a resource, which is the furthest thing from the truth. Right. 
You know, like that. I think your films are like, I can accept the fact that yes, we didn't know the regulations as well as we should have. Um, and if we made a mistake, like we'll, we'll own up to it. We'll take care of it, whatever that process is. And we won't do it again. And that's just exactly how the film permit thing was. We didn't know like, okay, if you want to say we did something wrong, what's the process moving forward? How do we make it right? And how do we do it right the next time? Great. Done. When, when you like try to characterize someone's actions that aren't true, like that's the only thing that like kind of bugs you a little bit. Right. Yeah. Fact. Fact. And yeah, I mean, absolutely. Would I, if we would have known that, like we never even would have went in there and made that film. Right. But honestly, like, would I have done something different? No. Like we thought that we took the steps that we needed to at that stage, you know, of first year as a business, just wanting to go make a film, you know, there's no manual out there online or, you know, there's nothing saying this is how you do it. It's trial and error. And that just happened to be one of the errors. And, you know, obviously it's not one that you'd want to pick of all the things that you could actually do wrong. But like we learned a ton through the process. And and some people are like, you know, like, why did you plead guilty if you were innocent and stuff? And it's like, I don't think too many people have been out there and had to like go to court and pay for an attorney to try to fight uh, charges, especially when it comes to regulations where they can, you know, as far as like the way that FWP had them written and meant to be like, yeah, we were guilty of fishing and tributaries. Like I'm not going to spend all the, like basically month, all this money fighting something technically. Yes, I was wrong. It was a mistake. Um, so it's like, yeah, that's not something that we can, that we can fight and win. And I mean, at the end of the day, we still have our licenses and that's a decision that, um, FWP had a chance to look at that and say, Hey, either we're going to cut this deal with them. We don't think it's this huge travesty or they should have taken us to court. And so for people who are like, well, they pled guilty. Like we still have our license. Like it couldn't have been that big a deal to FWP. If they're like, yeah, these guys can keep their licenses. So there's like this discrepancy. Like they say this horrible thing to the press, you know, to be like, yeah, look at pat us on the back. We're out here doing our job. But then at the end of the day, they know it's not that big a deal. Like, okay, yeah, we agree to this. Like, let's get it off of our plate. Yeah. And like the whole complex issue of hiring an attorney and like going through a legal process until you've done it. <laughs> right. Like you have no clue. Like, and it's, it's extremely costly. Well, now all that's in the rear view mirror, right? And <laughs> yeah, it's, no, it's time we to a tight, tight road of straight and narrow. So we know the regs very right. well. <laughs> so it's, it's now it's like on. You can only look at it and learn from it and just be better from it going forward, which I think we've done a pretty good job. I mean, we have we've received a bunch of hate from people who assume they know who we are and what our intentions were and that's fine. You know, people will have their opinions, but, uh, fortunately for us, like this is what we love to do. We're going to keep doing it. And the people that know us know that us as individuals, that's not our intent to go harm wildlife and to, you know, be these horrible people that go out and, uh, you know, intentionally break laws. So I think we're doing a pretty good job since then. So dust off the shoulder and you're on to the next one. Um, what, you know, what is, are you guys excited for any any hunts in 
2017. Do you got, um, can you share with us maybe any, anything that your your any film ideas that you're, you potentially could be working on or, or, uh, any tags that, uh, might be on the table for this upcoming season? Um, I mean, there's, <clears throat> there's not any, there's nothing in stone yet. Like we don't have any projects actually like on paper, like on the schedule, like we're doing that. And unfortunately we can't really like share any of our film ideas. Just like people think of the hunting industry, like, ah, oh, it's a bunch of dudes that hunt. Like it can't be like everybody just must be nice to each other. Like it's super cutthroat when you actually get down to it. <laughs> so I don't think there's any like film ideas we can share. We will have a really cool elk hunting film called the outlier that we shot um, two archery seasons ago. That will be coming out this year that I think people will really like. We yeah. basically spent a whole archery season filming um, in the Missouri River breaks. We ended up getting four elk um, on the ground on film. I was the only one that didn't shoot an elk. I was hunting with a recurve and I wasn't able to get it done. <laughs> um, so that's something that's cool that's coming out. I mean, we'll probably be making an elk hunting film this fall of some kind, an archery elk hunting film, um, might potentially be with a recurve. That'd be fun. Like that's on my bucket list is to shoot an elk with a recurve. Um, and then we probably will be filming like a late season high country, uh, mule deer slash elk film. Um, those are like hunts that we'll be filming. I don't know exactly what the film will look like yet, but, um, and then we've got a few fly fishing projects in the works, um, that are kind of slowly getting worked on. We don't really, uh, the fishing industry is just not a place to make money in any way, shape or form. There's just not much money getting spent on fly fishing films. So that's more of stuff we do because we love to and think it's rad. So it's a little slower process on that. But right. there's plenty in the works. There'll be plenty of content coming out. There's nothing super exciting that we can share at the moment, I don't think. No, but we do have exciting stuff, I can tell you that. <laughs> just so, can't say it. This is probably a question I should have asked you in the first five minutes, but all the hunts take place in montana is that something that it's gonna stay in montana or are you guys branching out to other states ever no we've shot films in idaho and wyoming also oh okay gotcha gotcha yeah. um so you know other than the the elk and the mule deer like you said are you guys going to be doing antelope again are you ever going to head to the midwest and do a, a whitetail hunt um mostly elk and deer here in montana for us but yeah i mean at some point i think we'll probably head out to the midwest and do some sort of tree stand hunt um it's not gonna happen this year but i'm sure at some point we will gotcha gotcha yeah it's living in montana it's hard to be like yeah i'm gonna go out east well you got everything there even whitetails do you, do you guys hunt whitetails in uh in montana at all you yeah. personally i shot a pretty good one two years ago yeah, yeah. Zach shot a pretty good one uh, four years ago or something, but I don't know, a while back. But yeah, we definitely have some nice whitetails here in Montana. Well, 
I tell you what, I am extremely jealous that you guys get to chase uh, pretty much anything you want, uh, any any big game species you want, give or take, and have the access to fly fishing. Uh, yeah. I think I like I said before we were or we started recording. If I wasn't locked down with a, a wife and kids, I would, uh, I'd be in my car on the way to Montana tomorrow. So, um, I'm a little bit jealous of you guys. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's super rad. Um, definitely having public lands, uh, <laughs> makes that's it a, a lot thing. easier. So that's a big thing right now. Right. And, um, there'll probably be a few things down the road where we tie in some of our, brand and projects to help kind of support the cause there. But right. Public lands issues is a big deal. It's, I think it's, it's easy to use social media to rouse people for a cause. I wish more people took it upon themselves to know a little bit more of the details rather than trusting like, Oh, so-and-so made one post online. Like I should oppose or be for this. Um, But yeah, I mean, People need to be educated on this stuff or else, you know, we will start to lose it. It's probably inevitable that some of it will be continue, you know. I mean, the more people that you have on the earth, I mean, just the less space you have to do stuff. So it's kind of like a a slow losing battle. But I think there's a lot of stuff we can do to make sure that public lands and public hunting and fishing opportunity always exists. Right. It's just going to take a little bit more, like, conscious action and effort on people's parts where in the past it was just you took it for granted now you like need to actually understand what that landscape looks like and like how easily public land could actually be no longer like i don't think until like people see it in action i think it's hard for people to even like realize like yeah that could just be private and locked out like you know the wilkes brothers bought a bunch of land in Idaho this last year that, you know, they locked the public out on and it, I don't, it, it was logging company land from what I understand. And, you know, they had allowed the public in there. It wasn't necessarily federal, you know, public land, but that's a pretty good example of the people that would potentially get their hands on it. Don't want you and I in there. (laughs) Amen. Amen. And I've had Randy Newberg on the on this podcast a, a couple times, and I'm currently doing a a short little clip of him talking about ins and outs of the Keep It Public movement on this podcast, uh, and um, the listeners will actually probably hear one uh, on this podcast as well. So uh, the Midwestern, like this Med- Midwestern podcast, is fighting for you guys as well. So just in hopes that someday I'll be able, you know, to get out there and uh, you know do some DIY hunts as well. For sure, yeah. dude. There's there's plenty of you know there's right. plenty of flatland hunting that's good hunting. So <laughs> right. if you don't have the time to get in like you know beast mode shape, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I Jim Shockey on one of his shows said it it takes ten days to once you get in the mountains to basically turn into a wolf. I think that was his quote. So yeah. you know. Uh, it might take me longer than 10 days, but, uh, eventually it'll wear off by just about the time I have to head off the mountain back to the, back to the, my real world. But yeah, I think if you bring your whitetail tactics to elk hunting, in the summer, <laughs> like if, if, if a lot of people hunted like whitetail hunters out West and had patience, you know, to like either sit a wallow or sit an area where, like a well-traveled trail, 
there'd probably be a lot more elk killed every year with with bow and arrow at least well i'm gonna probably try that uh i'm actually heading to colorado as of right now i'm heading to colorado in september uh to do another elk hunt so we'll see we'll see how that goes but zach travis guys i really appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh to come on the podcast and bs with me for a while yeah man i'm glad we finally got a time penciled in and got to chat with you for a while for yeah, sure man. good luck uh this upcoming season and uh i'm uh pretty stoked to uh see what you guys put out thanks man thanks. yeah again thanks for having us on and We'll be listening to the future podcast and wishing you luck when you go chase the elk around this fall. Huge shout out to the guys from Montana Wild. Thank you very much, Travis and Zach, for coming on the show. But before we get into the rest of the thank yous, let's hear another Keep It Public segment from Randy Newberg. Dan, uh, a lot of people are celebrating this week because House Resolution 621, which would have sold 3.3 million acres of of land, got defeated this week. Everyone mobilized. A lot of us in the hunting world were were right out in front with a lot of other public land users. And so the question then becomes, where's the next opportunity or where's the next uh, threat going to come from? And the odds are that the next threat will come in a concept called state transfer. And when I first heard of the idea about transferring these Western federal lands to the Western state land boards, I thought, oh, gee, I'm a small small government guy. That kind of sounds good to me. And then I started researching what restrictions there are on state land boards. Because I I grew up in northern Minnesota where our DNR held a lot of the state lands, and it it was just like federal land almost. We could go and do all kinds of things. There's really no difference. The western state land boards are way different. They sell a lot of those lands to fund the school systems. Uh, None of them that I'm aware of allow recreational shooting. Uh, I'll just use Colorado, for example. Uh, Their state land board currently prohibits hunting, fishing, shooting, camping, hiking, anything. So if you took the 23 million acres of Forest Service and BLM land that exist in Colorado and you transferred it to the Colorado State Land Board, which is what these folks under this state transfer idea want, now those laws and those rules and regulations that are enforced by the Colorado State Land Board would apply to that 23 million acres. So no hunting, no fishing, no camping, no hiking, no recreational shooting. Um, so I, I use that as, as the obvious example because it's, it's just so blatant and so many people use uh, Colorado public lands for recreation, residents and non-residents. So I think the next big attack is going to be veiled as this idea that sounds good on the surface called state transfer. But when you understand how these Western state land boards work and how restrictive they are and the fact that all of them will tell you our lands are not public lands, Every state land board in the West makes that very clear. Uh, if, if you're a public recreationist, public land recreationist, transferring these federal lands to state land, state land boards is going to impact your recreation significantly, in addition to the fact that the state land boards excel at selling these lands. And once they're sold, we're not getting them back. And they're not selling them to guys like me and you. They're selling them to people who put up no trespassing signs, put gates on them, and our hunting access is gone forever. 
And there you have it. Be sure to do some research on this Keep It Public movement. I know Randy Newberg's Facebook page and uh, Instagram posts have a lot of information. So uh, go and check that out. But huge shout out to Ripcord, huge shout out to Exodus Outdoor Gear, huge shout out to Deer Lab for making this uh, podcast possible. Thank you guys very much. Thanks to each and every one of you who has taken the time to download this podcast. Much appreciation your way. And uh, if you guys want to find out more information about the Nine Finger Chronicles, make sure you visit the Nine Finger Chronicles Instagram page. Follow that. Follow the Facebook page, and I'm also on Twitter, so check that out. Other than that, I hope the rest of your week goes smoothly. Thank you very much again, and remember to do your research and keep it public.